that was sort of the, the covenant that I made with myself with that song was like, fuck it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this authentically mm-hmm. rather than pursue it in a way that is, you know, for, for the sake of my own ego. To every generation, a revolution. Our parents had Woodstock and the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s. Our revolution? Recovery. The fact is that recovery and the awareness around addiction is more than a century old. We've been trying to cure this disease for a long time. In the past, shame and the cultural stigma around addiction kept people from talking about it openly. Our generation is bringing it into the light, sharing our stories, and trying to help other people who are still in the grips of their addiction. And you know, it's working. From new visibility in the media, to local and national politics, to health policy changes that acknowledge addicts' special needs for treatment, the recovery revolution is making progress. When we raise our voices, we save lives. Welcome to the season finale of the Addiction Unscripted podcast. Have a seat. We've got a story for you. Greg Williams knows the power of telling your story. Greg is the founder of Facing Addiction, a nonprofit recovery advocacy group. He's also a filmmaker whose documentary, The Anonymous People, won the 2014 PRISM Award for its touching, honest portrayal of addicts in recovery. His new documentary, Generation Found, was released April 4th. In this film, visionary counselors, law school dropouts, aspiring rock musicians, retired football players, oil industry executives, and church leaders come together in Houston, Texas to build the world's largest peer-driven youth and family recovery high school. The message? That together we can stop addiction in one of our most vulnerable communities, young people. I'm a person in recovery, uh, and I got sober when I was 17, and uh, nearly lost my life a couple different times um, through my teenage years and run-ins with the law and all that stuff, estranged from my family, and, you know, was fortunate enough to get quality adolescent treatment uh, when I was a teenager, and then, you know, recovery housing after that, and um you know, developed a real interest and desire to, to help young people in recovery and, and recovery changed my life. Um, but in my first four or five years of recovery, I, you know, I stayed pretty quiet about my own journey and uh, ultimately uh, decided to, um, uh, uh, you know, go to school for media production and, and, you know, I was in a documentary class and I, um, they were said, you know, you got to pick a charismatic subject, and you know, my friends and uh, people around me were were people in recovery, and their stories hadn't been really heard before. Um, and at the same time, I was, you know, I was bearing a lot of people uh, from this, and and visiting a lot of friends in jail from this, and and a lot of people's insurance cards weren't working, and you know, there was just all these you know challenges, and and I, you know like many of us do, had the assumption, well, if we told more stories and opened up more hearts, we could change the system. And so I started telling 
stories of, of young people in recovery and uh, really kind of uh, got into the field in that way through, through just this organic uh, creative journey. Um, and that was probably like five years into recovery and ultimately uh, met some, some advocates on the national level who were, uh, um, you know, really on the forefront of doing some national advocacy around uh, health insurance reform and, and parity and some of those things. And, and they had been public people in recovery for a long time and they had trainings on how to talk and, and all of that stuff. And then uh, I um, I had a mentor in my life and she said, you know, you really, you know, if you're going to get involved, you got to get your master's degree. And so um I said, well, I don't want to go back to school. And, and she said, well, find a program that makes sense for you. And I was so passionate about filmmaking that I, I found this program at, at NYU that I could combine filmmaking with uh, research. Um, and so that was kind of the foundation for the film, The Anonymous People, and, and the um, you know my research thesis around health finance. And so I got to study addiction, public policy, and health finance uh, while I was you know, working on, uh, this, that film and at the end of it, um, you know, released a, a, you know, a Kickstarter version of the film to get my master's and, and then went on Kickstarter and, you know, got, uh, anonymous people funded. And then, uh, from there kind of have been, uh, you know, kind of doing advocacy work ever since, um, you know, and, and kind of convening people and bringing people together around this issue and kind of, trying to help people un- understand the power of their story and the power uh, not just of, of telling their recovery story, but telling their story of advocacy and why it's so important to to channel your story with a purpose and, and that it's okay, you know, just because you have addiction, you might, you know, have an anonymous pathway or you might be, your family might be ashamed uh, of this issue or your society might be ashamed of this issue, that there are other people out there who are willing to step out and and it's okay to share your story and, and really helping to empower others to, to share their stories for, for, you know, life and death cause. Wow. So, so your new project is Generation Found, yes? A second documentary? Yeah. So that, that uh, I took, uh, that project built out of uh, the anonymous people a little bit. I, we covered recovery high schools and, and college recovery stuff in, uh, um, uh, anonymous people um, just for a short period of time, but it became one of the most talked about uh, sections of that film. And um, and then ultimately, I uh, I got a call from Houston, Texas, from these folks that I had known through through the advocacy movement, and they uh, uh, they said, you know, why don't you come down and, and check out what we're doing? And you know, there's a story here, and we'd love you to try to help us tell our story. And, uh, you know, what I saw down in Houston with their system of care for adolescents was not only personally inspiring because of the system that I got sober and in spite of, well, I should say, in spite of the system that I was surrounded with, I, I got to find and sustain recovery. But this, that, it, you know, it was just unbelievable to see, you know, the early intervention and screening and then, you know, treatment uh, in the community and then, you know, outpatient and then, uh, these alternative peer groups ongoing, supporting people, and then, you know, with supplemented by these recovery schools, and, and there was just this real ecosystem for adolescents to be wrapped in recovery 
uh, not just in, in the clinical treatment sense, uh, but but on an ongoing kind of continuum for, for years. And they, they figured it out and, and they were having great results and um, hundreds and hundreds of kids in that community who, you know, hang out together, stand together, go out Friday, Saturday night, you know, uh, do all kinds of things. I mean, it's, you know, it's a sober gang and, and they created that. And it's, uh, you know, it's really inspiring the power of community and the power of peer pressure when we, when we do the simple things to, to build community around positive things. So, um, so anyways, yeah, it's, it, it you know, Generation Found was, was, uh, you know, it's their story and, and, uh, was a two year journey that I went on with a guy named Jeff Riley, who's the co-filmmaker and he, um, he helped produce and edit and write and do all of that, uh, with me on this film who he was also the editor of the anonymous people. And, uh, and so we were proud to, to launch that film last year, um, uh, in September for, for recovery month theatrically. And it's, it's done very well around the country. People, uh, are very moved by, by the film. Um, and it's inspiring a lot of communities to think about building these supports for young people. And a, um, and so we're just getting ready now to release it digitally, uh, in, uh, in April. So on April 4th, we're going to be, uh, releasing it on, on iTunes and, and, uh, um, cable VOD and, and all the, all those other Amazon and, uh, Vimeo and all those websites, uh, and platforms that, um, people can, can get to, you know, get to watch it at home now and they don't have to go to the theater anymore. Yeah. They can watch it anonymously. <laughs> yes. yes, you can That's watch great. it anonymously. Although I still <laughs> encourage people to bring their community, watch it anonymously first. And then That's when you're right. inspired, Bring 150 friends Bring to the movie theater and watch it. I love it. Yeah, well, because because you know that's the cool part about this is is the model that we distribute and you can you know you can take down the theater uh, in your community and and uh, show the film in in that theater. So they'll take Batman down for the night, and if you can pull together 50 or 100 friends, you can go watch it on the big screen for for the price of a movie ticket. So um, you know it's a really cool opportunity for folks if if. Uh, uh, People are so inspired and want to share it with others. For Greg, Generation Found was eye-opening for a number of reasons. Mostly because it showed that a community-driven recovery high school model really could work. In the two years it took to film and finish the documentary, Greg learned a lot about advocacy, community, and how recovery worked with young people. Most of all, it gave him hope. After all, if this was working in Houston, Texas, why couldn't it work anywhere on earth? So um, Generation Found was, you know, as you said, focused on these recovery high school models and, you know, treatment that's specific to young people young folks who are needing to get sober or, um, need, need help. Um, I gotta tell you when you described all of the benefits, all of the help and all the support that they receive, um, at the, the, the school you visited in Houston, I felt jealous. Um, (laughs) I mean, you said that you yourself got sober in spite of the system that you were in. So I'm wondering, you know, when you were, when you were down filming in Texas, um, what did those kids have that you didn't? Well, 
it's, um, you know, it's multiple things, but, but it's really, I mean, the community, uh, the system, you know, it's really about this, this, this notion of a recovery oriented system that, that, uh, supports people, you know, at its highest level, you know, but people need to understand really three facts about addiction. And, and one is, uh, a, that it's, that it's a chronic health problem, not an acute, uh, health issues. So this notion of going to rehab for 28 days or seven days or 14 days, and then never using drugs and alcohol again, um, you know, it's just, it's flawed. It's flawed in, in a lot of different ways. And so um, the, uh, uh, we need to think about more of a chronic health system for it, like, you know, type two diabetes, heart disease, you know, where there's step down care and ongoing supports and ongoing community support. So that's where we've, as a country and most communities have woefully been lacking in, in providing that, that uh, both the front end and the, in the after part. I mean, treatment is still hard to come by for many, but, but even when you can find treatment, there's no before and no after. So we wait till somebody gets very, very, very sick. Uh, and then we might give them a little treatment and then we give them nothing after. And so, um, so that's fundamentally flawed with our system as a whole. So what they have down there is this notion of early intervention. So, so that's, that's the first thing that, that is really important. The other thing to really understand is nine out of 10 people who ever have an addiction started using in adolescence. So um, this really is a pediatric health crisis. Addiction is a pediatric issue. And so all the evidence points to early intervention getting us the best results. So if we're going to make headway around addiction at, at, at a macro level, we have to start with young people and we have to figure out how to intervene early in their life before A, it gets really, really bad, or B, um, you know, we can prevent relapse and, and, and sustain recovery early in life. And it's a lot easier for young people to, uh, they're so resilient at, at 16, 17, 18, you know, versus waiting till they're, you know, homeless and unemployed at 35 or 45. And, and um, they're so close to the onset of their condition that they're able to, to get up causes and conditions of, of their uh, addiction in a, in a lot quicker way, um, you know, and, and then, you know, I think the, uh, uh, the last thing is, is, you know, how influenced teenagers are by their peers um, and in really understanding that at, you know, psychology at about 12 or 13 years old, all of a sudden young people become less influenced by their, their, their parents, their school, uh, and they flip the switch and they become more influenced by their peers. And so it's so, so important to understand the, uh, the peer dynamic in, in, in the power of peer influence on young people. Um, and so the notion that, that we send a 16 year old to treatment and say, you know, you, 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 they do great in treatment and then they come back and they, um, uh, they say, you know, you guys have an issue. You probably should go to some meetings, blah, blah, blah. Don't drink and use drugs. But we send them back into the same exact environment uh, that that we took them out of that was facilitating their problem in the first place. So for an adult, you know, alcoholic, we'd probably say, you know, hey, you know, probably not a great idea to go back to the bar. Uh, probably not a good idea to go to the, drive the same route home past the package store you always stop by, right? We'd make these kinds of easy suggestions for people they're not easy to do, but, but, you know, some places they could avoid where, where alcohol wouldn't be in their face in early recovery. Well, when you talk to young people and adolescents, where do they get their drugs? Where do they get their alcohol? School, school, school. 
that's their drug dealers. That's their bar. So we, adolescence, the bar is the high school. And, and, and so it's unavoidable that, you know, because you can't take them out of school. And so we, we treat young people and we get great results in 28 days or, or 14 days or outpatient and the counselor's making great progress and they have to send them, the kid right back to the bar. And it's fundamentally flawed. And so that notion uh, that we can build uh, educational supports that are positive and, and uh, recover, you know, impact the recovery culture, that's what Houston has figured out. They figured out that dynamic that we can build a positive peer community around young people, um, wrap them with, with positive peers, build a culture around this, and also have educational opportunities for them that aren't, you know, regular uh, traditional high schools, you know, where there's a lot of drug dealing going on and, and uh, um, negative uh, peer pressure that, that are impacting them. And, and so they're able to, to, to really help um, improve their outcomes and sustain recovery with these additional supports in place on an ongoing basis. Of course, there's that song. We're so thrilled to collaborate with him and have a song that kind of uh, embodies uh, the message of the film because it is overwhelming. Like when you step back and you're like, you know, live in a city or live in a state, um, you're like, oh, we got to build a school and then we got to do a peer group and then we got to do treatment and we got to do prevention. We got to get the doctors. We got to get the, you know, it's, it's overwhelming for an individual to think about the systemic changes that their community needs. And so to, to bring it down to the level of, you know, no matter what on a daily basis, you know, if you're helping just one, you're making progress. And, and I think that's, you know, is the core message here of, of, um, you know, reach one, teach one and, and, and later in life, the system will change, you know, the, you know, the more we can, uh, inspire and, you know, uh, inspire innovation, inspire people to get involved. Um, you know, the more just ones we can reach. Matt Butler is a singer songwriter who's also in recovery. He wrote and performed just one for generation found after getting sober, he kept making music and performing and singing about making it back from the edge of his addiction. Often, his songs come straight from his own experience and his clear memories of struggling in and out of sobriety. I talked with Matt about his journey through recovery, his creative practice as a musician, and of course, that wonderful song, Just One. I would say that, you know, getting sober has has really revolutionized like my whole approach to artistry and and uh um you know and craft and and things like that i uh really was really affected very early on in my sobriety by a book called the war of art by a guy named stephen pressfield and uh and then just a bunch of stuff that i I, you know i learned in recovery as far as uh bringing spirituality into the process and uh i would say now you know, my, it's very, you know, it's, each song is different, you know, the way each song comes out. But, um, the, the sort of the biggest difference is that I'm able to like sustain steady work on something on a, on a day-to-day basis rather than in, in the past when I used to, you know, use drugs and alcohol to kind of facilitate 
you know, write, writing or, or, or whatever. I, you know, I would sort of binge write the way I would, you know, binge use. And, uh, the aim of, you know, for me, like the point of, of bringing drugs and alcohol into my writing at the time had really didn't have anything to do with, you know, a sense of like, you know, rock and roll or, or that I, you know, that I was like, you know, tapping into something, you know, with it. But the, the main thing that drugs and alcohol provided me in the past was a, was a means to sort of bypass my self-critical voice. So, you know, this, there's this like intense fear and self-consciousness that, that precedes writing anything, Yeah. you know, just like the fear of like anything, like just like putting something down on a page. You're like, Oh man, this sucks. This is going to be bad. You know, and, and, uh, I'm worthless. I can't write. I'm, you know, I'm no good or, or whatever. And, and that whole very familiar, ne- you know, spiral of negativity. So for me, you know, the way you would use alcohol or the way people, you know, talk about, you, you know, getting drunk to be more social, you know, like as a social lubricant to reduce social anxiety, you know, I would use alcohol as a means to reduce sort of the the voices in my head that told me that I was incapable of writing anything good. And, um, you know, and then speed and stimulants are just good for writing. Then you think up. everything is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you think everything you do is amazing at yeah. that point. There's no, yeah. uh, there's so, no cap on that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's the truth. That is the truth. And yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. And then it stops working, you know, and, and the thing with the, uh, you know, using alcohol or drugs, you know, and using them both, you know, to, to sort of create a song or create anything is it's like this very kind of, you know, dangerous game of chemistry where like I would get to a point where I would use a certain amount and then I would all this, and, you know, there'd be like a finite window where I was like just drunk enough or just, you know, high enough to, to actually get something out. But then, you know, like one sip, you know, one, one shot of whiskey more and I'm just drinking at that point, you know, and then like the writing just goes out the window and, uh, and then it's just about getting loaded at that point. And then it just stopped working, you know, completely. And, and, and uh, I had really, I had really, really miserable experiences, you know, over and over again with, you know, just kind of like the sense of I'm going to lock myself in a room and I'm not going to come out until I've got something, you know, that resembles, born to run, you know, or, or, or like a, you know, some kind of classic. And then, and, you know, that's the thing is, it, you know, when you're, when you're sort of so hooked on the instant gratification, you can't allow anything to really develop. So my creative process today is the opposite of that. And I, I don't know, I guess you could say, you know, it's, I, I don't know how to say if it's like fast or slow or efficient or inefficient. Cause I don't really know how to really compare my process necessarily to anybody else's. And, um, you know, like I said, it's sort of different every time, but I, uh, I try not to, I try to really like not censor myself in the early stages of things. You know, I try to like allow words to get onto the page. And I think the, the biggest principal difference in my creative process between, between now and then is that I, in the past, I used to view myself as the source of the material 
and that it was coming from me and that it was mine and I was responsible for it. And so if it was good, I was good. If it was bad, I was bad. And I could take total credit for it. And, um, you know, and I could use it to sort of validate and glorify myself in a certain way. And then today I, I look at myself as a, you know, I, I look at the process as, as like channeling as if, you know, the, you know, the songs are coming from a, a higher power as the universe of some sort of metaphysical source. And really, you know, my creative process is 90% outside of the writing room in the sense that it's really all about maintaining my spiritual condition so that I'm better to, uh, so I'm able to receive the ideas when they come, you know, like I'm able to, uh, it's more about being prepared to write than it is to actually write. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I mean, you just got to be ready to grab that idea when it goes by. Yeah, and and not be blocked by fear mm-hmm. and resentments and Self-doubt. all this other petty stuff. That would, yeah, so if I'm obsessing about losing something or not getting something, or you know, I'm angry at somebody or I'm angry at something or I'm you know in that state, then uh, you know I just can't hear it. Mm-hmm. I can't see it. Just One didn't exactly show up with a bow on it. Matt found the music and lyrics for this moving anthem in a very unexpected place. Your songwriting and your music has been compared to Tom Petty, Springsteen, um, you know, the, the American greats. Um, and I think that yeah. that's, that's an earned comparison. I've listened to your stuff and, and I hear it. Um, what I what I hear, especially in your in the single you cut for uh, Generation Found, uh, just one, I hear Guthrie. You know, I hear that that like revolutionary, um, compassionate call to action um, that you know that yeah. goes way back into our American roots. Uh, can you talk to me about how you wrote that song and what it means to you? Yeah, 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 of course. And that's super flattering. Uh, you know, really appreciate that. Uh, the, uh, I'm, a, I'm a really, you know, massive Springsteen fan and a really, you know, sort of obsessed Bob Dylan fan as well. And so, you know, that's obviously like the, that's the lineage, right? You mm-hmm. know, Woody Guthrie. Um, He's the man. That, yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, that was, that song was a gift in the sense that I, uh, you know, um, the, the experience, you know, the, the idea of like being asked to write that song initially, you know, kind of led me to some flights of, of grandiosity in terms of like, well, you know, like here's, here's this opportunity to like write something anthemic and, uh, you know, it was really exciting and a lot of, I felt some pressure as well. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of time to do it. I, I, by the time when I first met Greg Williams for coffee, who's the you know creator of Generation Found, um, he was, the film itself was already in in test screenings. It just it just hadn't been color corrected yet. So they the movie was done, and the uh, the song was this like last piece. And uh, you know I met with him in August uh, or in in uh, July. Yeah, and it needed to be, it needed to not only be written, but it needed to be recorded and mixed and mastered and deliverable, you know, within like a matter of weeks, which, yeah, it was sort of like, all right, like, 
mean, I, I, I handled it okay. I mean, the job got done, so I handled it however it needs to be handled. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's there. It's in the movie, and there was no problem. But, uh, you know, I, like the Woody Guthrie thing is, 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 is great. I mean, it's, I, I, I certainly, like, listen to Bob Dylan, you know, the times they are changing, like, a, a million times, and, and I like, cried while listening to it because I was, like, in the state of, like, you know, kind of awe that I was given this opportunity and it was, it's so meaningful. I mean, and I, I, and, and at the time when I was in high school, this film's about recovery high schools and kids, you know, dealing with, with addiction. And it was just seems so timely and so relevant right now. And I was a total mess. You know, I was in hospitals and jails and all, I went to a bunch of different high schools. Like I was really out of my mind and I didn't know anything about recovery. So for me, it was like this whole thing of like, wow, this is this opportunity to, kind of go full circle and give back in a way that is really powerful um, and uniquely my own. Cause like here, here I am on the other side of, you know, in recovery and given a chance to write a song, which is like what I do, you know, for the, for this, this sort of this, this movement, this advocacy tool that is that film. And so it's really, you know, talk about beyond our wildest dreams kind of thing. But, uh, I mean, I didn't know, I, I, I had an idea for the song, like almost immediately hmm. and I, cl- I clinged to it and it, but it was not just one. It was something, <laughs> it was yeah. something else. And like, I kind of, kind of thought I was hit by a thunderbolt or lightning bolt of inspiration and spent a couple of weeks, um, trying to f- make this idea work. And I was, you know, I had a couple of drafts of songs, but none of them could get, I could just could not finish them. Hmm. Like they just weren't finishable. And so it just, you know, seemed like it wasn't right. And um, I, I was writing songs that were very similar to the songs on my album, which was sort of more like these long narrative story songs. And it just didn't feel right because it didn't feel like what I wanted, yeah. what anybody would want people to be walking out of the theater thinking, you know, something and, and something more anthemic. And then uh, I think I had like 10 days left and it was sort of this thing like, all right, like, am I going to throw a Hail Mary pass and try to start from scratch? You know, just like with like 30 seconds left in the game and try to do it. And so that's what I did. And, and then I just like went to church with my mom and, you know, I went out to a concert that night with my friend and, and my friend was saying to, to me that, uh, she, she's an art therapist and she was sort of like, you know, if I could only help just one of these kids and I was sort of like, uh, wait, you know, like, what, like say that again, like, what, like, what, you know, what did you, what did you say? And, She's like, if I could help just one of the kids. And, and then when she said it, I kind of like heard the melody of the song. Like I, like I, I sort of knew what the phrasing could be for how to use that word. And then it struck me, um, that there was a speech in the movie, you know, that a woman was basically, you know, saying, saying the same thing. And just a week earlier, I'd been up playing this, this shelter, this like men's shelter, uh, at a monastery, this place Graymore, St. Christopher's Inn. And I was playing for the guys up there. And one of them had come up to me after the show and had said, um, 
do you know that saying about how when you're an artist or when you're a musician, if you if you can touch just one person at the gig, you really did your job. And he's like, and you really did your job, man. And he had tears in his eyes when he said it to me. And so all of a sudden, like when she, when my friend Cece said this phrase, like it kind of all of these little dots connected in my head. And I was like, oh wait, like that's the song. Um, and then the next day, I got a, my my stepmother's father passed away, and I was kind of like fuck because i knew that i mean you know we had to go to services and i had like a week to write basically write the song and and like go to a recording studio and like you know record it and uh and you know my stepmother's jewish and and they were all sitting Mm -hmm. shiva all week and you know it was kind of like this moment where i was sort of given one of my biggest tests of the principles of recovery where it was like are you going to do, are you going to like show up for your family? Are you going to trust, you know, are you going to have, are you going to like take the leap of faith that like, this is going to work out if you do the right thing and not lock myself in the room, you know, and, uh, and only emerge once I had my, my masterpiece, you know? So this was like literally like this whole challenge of like versus the guy that I was and the guy that I was trying to be. And, and I only had the phrase just one. There's a lot more to writing a song than just, <laughs> just the tagline, you know? Yeah. And uh, and so I remember sort of having a moment of real surrender, sitting on my couch and, like, kind of trying to meditate and, and, and pray. And, uh, and then I decided that I would work on the song for, like, an hour, an hour or two a day, and then I would, go, I would double up on, you know, things like meetings and uh, spend time with my family. And I wrote the song backwards. Um, there's a line at the end of the song where it talks about uh, mourners dressed in black. It's in the third verse of the song. And that's where I started because I was literally surrounded by these rabbis doing the mourners' kaddish and praying. I was like praying, you know, for my family, but I was also kind of like, all right, <laughs> give me the song, man. <laughs> like, Come on, please, Lord. I'm here. <laughs> Cough it up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, because I thought I was about to blow the biggest opportunity I had of, of uh, mm-hmm. the most meaningful opportunity a lot in a lot of ways of my of my whole career, and um, and then I just started writing it backwards, and and I basically bluffed the whole thing in the sense that um, I called my friend Ben, who I recorded my album with, and told him that you know I need to do the song and. And, you know, I got the musicians and we, and he gave me some off hours that, you know, that weren't in session and a bunch of, bunch of guys that I'd worked with really like went out on a limb for me and that they, you know, they just like showed up, you know, at various, you know, they kind of just made it happen for me at the last minute. And, um, I went into this, I, you know, I, I basically had the whole thing set up and, and. I finished the song the night before going into the studio. Like literally, you know, I, I finished the song, meaning I finished the very first line of it. And, uh, and then I recorded it on my, uh, recorded part of it on my iPhone and sent it to Greg and Jeff from the film. And in the morning, and then I went to bed and then, and in the morning I woke up with an email from, from one of them saying that they loved the song. And it was kind of like, great. Cause <laughs> it's like, it's, it's already, it's already happening. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm about to record it now. Wow. And uh and the song itself, you know, was a direct response to my own 
total spiritual dilemma of like of um not knowing how wanting to do more you know always like wanting to do to do more and and not knowing how to how to be of service and then you know I also was really going through a moment where, and I, and I still go through these moments where, I mean, I'm just very aware of my desire, you know, my gratitude and my desire to, to create art that's helpful and inspiring and healing for people and my desire to be of service. And I'm very aware of the shadow side of that, which is that I want to make money and be famous and all those things that, you know, are still sort of like a, our egos are still like very revivable, you know. It's true, and you and, know, uh, I think I think the danger too is that you fall into that uh, fall into that narrow category of relying on other people's, um, you know, validation, and you know, yeah. relying on relying on their positive response instead of um, telling the truth, which is what that lineage totally. of great songwriters has done since the beginning of time. Well, basically, that's that's what I was you know, that was sort of the the covenant that I made with myself with that song was like, fuck it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this authentically Mm -hmm. rather than pursue it in a way that is, you know, for, for the sake of my own ego. And, and, you know, and I, and by saying like, you know, whatever it is, like all my own problems, all of my own flaw, I was sort of like frustrated with myself in the sense that I was like, why am I, why is my ego or why are these other components, the, the doubt, the fear, still so prevalent in my life. And it was like, all right, you know, like, fuck it. If I can, if I can help one person, it doesn't matter. You know, like if I can, if I can still just show up, you know, I, I sort of accept my own imperfection, accept my own guilt about certain things and just sort of put it to the side for the sake of like, all right, well, if I can, if I can help, if I can help somebody. It's it doesn't matter. The film Generation Found tells the story of what happens when a community collaborates to fight addiction in a new way. The documentary proves that we don't need a war on drugs. We need a new attitude and an approach that works for young people. A real, tested, effective, long-term alternative to prisons and hospitals exists. Treatment centers, sober high schools, alternative peer groups, and collegiate recovery programs are all part of the solution for a new generation of addicts, their families, and people making recovery possible for everyone. Generation Found is available April 4th on iTunes, Google Play, Fandango, Amazon, and Vudu. For more information, visit generationfound.com. This is Claire Foster. Thanks for listening to the Addiction Unscripted podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this season, and we'll be back soon for more. Catch you later.